0: Well, good morning to those of you who are gathered here in the sanctuary, to those in the commons, and to those of you at home from wherever you're joining us. Welcome. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 13. And it is a sermon entitled, A Tale of Three Cups. For the truth of the matter is you can tell a lot about a person by the cups from which they drink. Ever thought of that? Uh, Probably even this morning, if I go around and uh, look at, hey, those of you who brought your cup from home, it probably has something about it that tells me something about you. And if you have a mug tree at home, right, that might be kind of more of an older thing, but uh, a mug tree where you kind of collect your mugs from Cedar Point or wherever it is that you've been, those cups tell a lot about you. Uh, For example, here's what you can learn about me from my cups. Um, Here's the first one. And uh, this one says that I'm a middle-aged empty nester attempting to fill my void of children with canines. That's what you can learn from me about this particular cup right here. So like I said, you can tell a lot about a person by the cups from which they drink. And then this one says that I am particularly secure in my masculinity. All right. Unashamed to proclaim my love for my two pugs, Libby and Coco, which admittedly are not the manliest of dogs. All right, So I fully admit that. But I'm secure in that. So that's what you can learn from the cups from which I drink. And then finally there's this one, which is self-explanatory, isn't it? It says that I have extremely good taste and that I, uh, I enjoy winning. So... Um, And the rest of you can feel free to insert your own Ohio State hate right there. But like I said, you can tell a lot of person by the cups from which they drink. And with that in mind, Revelation chapter 14 verses 9 through 13 is a tale of three cups. And from which of these cups you drink will ultimately tell everything about you. From which of these cups you drink will ultimately tell everything about you. But before we get to these cups, let's do what we do, which is to recap where we've been. Let's put the message in its context to so make sure that we're all on the same page. The book of Revelation breaks down into three main parts. Part one is chapter one. It deals with the Apostle John's vision of the exalted Christ, and it blew his mind, and it sets the tone for the whole book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Part two is chapters two and three. It deals with things present to the Apostle John. It was the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, both to encourage them during times of intense persecution and also to correct them. And then part three, which is the longest, chapters four through 22, it deals with things future or prophetic, the consummation of the kingdom. And the purpose of this third part of Revelation is to give believers the advanced history of how Jesus Christ by means of judgment becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. And I I hope that's one thing you're taking with you from our study of Revelation, that it is calling you to faithfulness and godliness. Even though what we're talking about is yet to happen in the future because this judgment comes after the church has been raptured and during the seven-year period known as the tribulation, it matters to us today. It is a call to faithfulness and to godliness. And in this seven-year tribulation that is to come, there are three waves of judgment. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bulls. And we have covered the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. But before we get to the bull judgments, we find ourselves in an extended interlude, which is chapters 10 through 15. And these interludes in the book of Revelation, they, they serve as a pause in the judgments, which is good because we can only take so much of that at a time. It helps us to take a deep breath, and um, it fills in some important information about key players and events. And in chapters 12 through 13, those key players were the members of the unholy trinity. It was the story of Satan, the Antichrist. Anti spirit, who is more commonly known as the false prophet. And during the tribulation, the antichrist and the false prophet, they fulfill two key roles. Uh, The antichrist is a political leader who has satanic authority to rule. And the false prophet is a religious leader who has satanic authority to speak. And what does he speak about? He speaks about the Antichrist, persuading people to worship him, and he has this incredible bag of tricks to accomplish this purpose. Uh, If you remember from when we studied the false prophet, he performs great signs, deceives those who dwell on the earth, he incites the creation of an image of the first beast, he animates the image of the first beast, he causes those who do not worship the image to be slain, he causes all to be marked with the number of the beast, and he controls commerce. And so that's a whole lot of evil, isn't it? There's a whole lot of evil and a whole lot of power, which at this point in Revelation, we might scratch our heads and, and wonder, where is God in all of this? Is he really on the throne while all of this is taking place? Because it seems at this point in the story that it just doesn't feel like it. And that's where chapter 14 comes in. Chapter 14 provides for us the reassurance that though Satan is real, and we've seen that, he's powerful in chapters 12 through 13, God's people and purposes will ultimately prevail. God is still on the throne. He will be victorious. And the Apostle John received this wonderful reassurance by means of three visions. Vision one was that vision of the followers of Christ in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Um, The second vision is the vision of three angels in verses 6 through 13. And each of these angels has a unique message to the earth, don't they? Angel number one proclaimed the gospel. Angel number two proclaimed doom, that, that message of warning to all who reject the message of the first angel. And then that brings us today to angel number three, verses 9 through 13, who proclaims, Damnation, And probably you see in these angels and their messages a natural progression, don't you? The gospel followed by warning, which is then followed by judgment. And I think this is important to note because it shows us that once again, God goes the extra mile to give warning to his creation about the judgment to come. And he invites them to be saved. He's not going to surprise anybody. The message is going to be loud and clear. And then chapter 14 will then end with a third vision. It is a vision of the harvest, and we'll cover that next week. So that's the context. That's where we are in the story. And uh, let's go today to our text, Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, where it says this. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand... those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Can we pause here for a moment of prayer? Father, this is a hard passage, not so much in, to understand it, um, but to... Swallow to, to receive it. Um, this has some hard things to teach us today, but they're important things. And I pray that rather than to discourage us or bring us down, they would inspire us and encourage us to be your people. And so, Father, um, I pray that as we listen to your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word, that we would be good listeners. I pray that you'd help me to do my job by the power of your Holy Spirit to proclaim it. And we ask this for help together today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so that point once again. Well, first of all, this is a passage, a tale of three cups. Number one, the cup of idolatry. Number two, the cup of wrath. And number three, the cup of blessing. And so we're going to circle back to each one of those. And remember the premise of the message today, from which of these cups you drink will ultimately tell everything about you. So let's take a look at the first of these cups, the cup of idolatry in verse 9. We're actually, we were introduced to this cup last week, if you remember. Let's look back at verse 8. Another angel, the second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then pay attention to this part. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And you'll remember that Babylon refers to the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of Antichrist, which is directly opposed to God and his kingdom. It is a kingdom of idolatry described as a blasphemous, seductive harlot, enticing humanity to commit spiritual adultery, to forsake our loving and faithful God and to embrace other gods. Specifically during the tribulation, The enticement will be to worship the Antichrist. And this is what it's talking about in verse 9 when it says, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Again, a reference to the beast of the sea, the Antichrist, that is the political leader who has satanic authority to rule and who will demand that all people worship him and his image or Suffer the consequences, which ultimately is death. So, this third angel here gives a warning to all who are alive during the tribulation about drinking from this cup of idolatry. This is for those who worship the beast and receive his mark, which might cause us today in 2021 to ask the question Does this passage even apply to me? That's great for them. Third angel is declaring this for them. But what about me? What does this passage have to do with us today? After all, we're not living during the time of the tribulation. And so we're not at this time being pressured by the Antichrist to take the mark. And so we are not being given this particular cup to drink. Or are we? Or are we? For you see, at the end of the day, all sin is idolatry. All sin is idolatry. It is choosing to give our adoration to something other than God. It is living in such a way that God is not the ultimate of our lives, but lesser things are. And this is most clearly evidenced by how we handle our time, our talents, and our treasure. If I look at those three things in your life, I will be able to tell what you worship, what you adore, what is most important to you. These things ultimately reveal our idols. Author Timothy Keller, he says it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my, like my life has meaning then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. Whether that's health, material possessions, a job, a spouse, a relationship, comfort, recreation, the list of potential idols seems unending because Keller goes on to say, our hearts are idol factories. As the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. The blasphemous, seductive harlot is constantly luring us away from God to lesser things and to drink from that cup of idolatry, and none of us is immune. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Do you know what the Greek word translated here, all, literally means? All. And so you you were all concerned when Pastor Mike retired that the the bar would be lowered, right, in terms of the, yeah, all. Every single one of us, which means that we have all drunk from this cup. So it absolutely, 100%, applies to us today, the cup of idolatry. And so we deserve the bitter consequences for doing so. Those consequences are proclaimed then by this third angel in verses 10 through 11. And this is where it gets really, really heavy. They come in the form of another cup, the cup of wrath, verses 10 through 11. So let's look at verse 10 where it says this. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. You see, those who drink the cup of idolatry, whether that's during the tribulation or today, and we've already established the fact that applies to all of us They are doomed to drink the cup of God's wrath. And this verse uses some intense imagery to describe the contents of this cup. Here the ESV reads that it is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Some of your translations will read undiluted. Undiluted wrath. Communicating that this is 100% wrath. Concentrate, with no grace or mercy to soften it, to weaken it. Psalm 75, verse 8, it talks about this cup of God's wrath. It says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Remember that old uh, Maxwell House coffee commercial? What was the, the tagline for that? It was good to the last drop, right? This is death to the last drop. Those who drink from the cup of idolatry will drink every drop of God's undiluted wrath. And verse 10 goes on to describe it in great detail. Those who drink of this cup, it says, they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Here's the point. The cup of God's wrath finds its ultimate expression in what is known as hell. A literal place of conscious, eternal torment. That somehow, as you read what the scripture has to tell us about hell, it somehow involves both darkness and fire. Now, how that works, I don't know, but I don't want any part of it. Darkness and fire. Nor do I want any part of the fact that the text here today seems to say that those in torment will be aware of the other side. Did you see that? aware of what's going on in paradise because it says that while in hell they will be in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb perhaps the greatest torment of hell is not the fire and the darkness it's not even the eternality of hell perhaps the greatest torment of hell is the fact that people will be able to see what they're missing Just like in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Look that one up later if you're not familiar with that one. But maybe that gives us a snapshot about what this is talking about. This is the ultimate would have, could have, should have, the ultimate regret. And in verse 11 of our text goes on to say, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Admittedly, this is, this is hard. We don't like to think about hell. We don't like to talk about hell. And you know what? So many churches don't. Many churches don't talk about hell, and others will even take this extra step of trying to explain it away or to soften it somehow, which has led to the creation of at least three lies about hell. And maybe you've heard of some of these. Three lies about hell. The first is universalism. Universalism. The belief that everybody is going to make it to heaven. God's love, his grace, his mercy will ultimately throw open the doors wide and just let everybody and anybody in. So we don't have to really worry about hell after all. It's going to be fine for everybody in the end. And you may be aware the most notable expression of universalism recently has been the, the work by Rob Bell in his heretical book, Love Wins. Um, I, sadly, I've seen entire churches built on the teachings of this particular book. And dozens of professing believers led astray. That's the first lie about hell, which is universalism. Second lie about hell is annihilationism. Annihilationism. This is the belief that the the torment of hell is temporary as the soul is annihilated. And really what we have here is a kinder, gentler hell. A kinder, gentler hell. The the torment is real. Wrath and judgment are dispensed. But according to this view, people will not have to endure the torment forever. There's there's an end to it. Making the doctrine of hell, again, a bit more palatable. It's kinder. It's gentler. God's wrath diluted just a bit. And then line number three is retributionism. Retributionism. This is the belief that everyone is going to make it to heaven But first they have to pay for their sins. So kind of a modified universalism with just a dash of wrath and judgment. Again, softening the doctrine to make it easier to swallow. And hey, I get it. I get it why people come up with these things. They don't want hell to be real. They certainly don't want it to be eternal. We all have loved ones, right, that are not right with the Lord, and we can't bear to think of them in hell. And so sometimes that's just enough for us to go astray of what the scriptures teach us to make it sit a little bit better with us. But the third angel here in Revelation says otherwise. And so does Jesus himself, who makes no attempt whatsoever to soften it, um, First of all, let's look at what the third angel says again. He says in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And then again, here's what Jesus has to say about hell He calls it a place of eternal torment. Of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, and from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. And those are the words of Jesus Himself. So it's not some invention of the Apostle Paul, or it's not something that um, is extra. It's this is what Jesus Himself says about hell. The truth is that Jesus taught more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. He had more to say about hell than he did about heaven. He went out of his way to make the consequences of our sin and idolatry crystal clear. And so did the Apostle Paul, who said in 2 Thessalonians 1-7, said, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I don't know how you can get universalism, annihilationism, retributionism out of the clear teaching of God's word. Well, as people process this hard truth, it raises some questions, doesn't it? Um, let's, Let's address two of them. Two questions that inevitably arise about hell. The first question is this. How can a loving God send someone to hell? That's fair, isn't it? That's a fair question, because at first glance, it would seem inconsistent with his love. But we must consider the full character of God, the whole package, not picking and choosing the the characteristics of God we like, but his full character, which includes his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. His holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. Without Judging sin, unless God judges sin, he will not be a just God. On a human level, what would you call a judge who just lets criminals walk free? What would you call that judge? That's unjust. That's injustice that's taking place. We'd be up in arms. We would march in the streets and we would cry out, that is unjust. If that's true of a human judge, how much more the judge of the universe Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So there's a lot, admittedly, that I don't understand, that I don't grasp about the judgment to come. I'll admit that. I wrestle with this stuff the way that you do, but at the end of the day, I know this. Whatever God does will ultimately be good and just because that is his character. Amen? Amen. And because of that, he can be fully trusted. All right. Second question frequently asked about hell is this. How is eternity in hell a fair punishment for sin? Which I kind of get that, right? We live temporarily here on earth and then our sin has eternal consequences. It seems like maybe the punishment exceeds the crime. So where is the fairness in that? Now, first of all, isn't that just like us as finite human beings to be the arbiters of what is fair? like we know better than God does about what fair is all about. That's just like us to do so. I I think that's when when Satan was tempting Eve, he caused her to question God's fairness in the garden, right? Eve, that's not fair. What do you mean you can't eat that? When we start questioning the fairness of God, it is not a long leap for us to be falling into temptation. Well, the question of how eternity in hell is a fair punishment for sin reveals a lack of understanding of God's eternal, and understandably so, when we try to grasp things that are eternal, that's difficult, but it reveals a lack of understanding of God's eternal and infinite being and how it relates to our sin. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now just think about the significance of that for a moment. Our God is outside of time. He is eternal and infinite. He has no beginning and no end. Think about who it is that we're dealing with here and the ramifications for our sin. Because here's the point. God's holy, perfect, and infinite being has been offended by our sin. God's holy, perfect, infinite being has been offended by our sin. Our finite minds tend to view sin as being limited in our time, but to God, who is infinite, who is outside of time, the sin he hates goes on and on and on. Our sin is eternally before him and therefore must be eternally punished in order to satisfy his holy justice. And we read about this holy justice in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. We'll get there in a few weeks. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Everybody take a deep breath with me now. Whew. Okay. If the story ended there, with the cup of idolatry and the cup of God's undiluted wrath that we would have to drink to the last drop, this would be the most tragic and saddest of all stories. We would be without hope, but you know better than that, don't you? For there is, in fact, a third cup, right? There is, in fact, a third cup. It is the cup of blessing, the cup of blessing, Even when God tells us about hell, there is a a point of hope to which it concludes. A cup of blessing in verses 12 through 13. The Apostle Paul spoke of this cup of blessing in 1 Corinthians 10 16, where he said, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That, that cup of blessing, that, that cup that we drink when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that cup signifies the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, we have all drunk from the cup of idolatry. Can we agree on that? Yes. And yes, we all deserve to drink from the undiluted cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. But now, because of God's great love, And by his amazing grace, we are able, we are invited to drink freely from the cup of blessing as those who have been given eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? As horrible as the first two parts of this message are, that should give us this appreciation for how wonderful this third point is. But church, don't lose sight of this fact. The cup of blessing does not come to us cheaply. Because God is just, justice for our sin had to be delivered. Did it not? Someone had to drink the cup of wrath that was meant for us. This is what Jesus spoke about in the Garden of Gethsemane when it says, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, And and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? What, What cup is he so seemingly hesitant to drink? What is it? It's the cup of God's wrath. The cup meant for us. Again, for a moment, it seems that Jesus hesitates to drink it. He asks for another way. Why? Well, because he understands the consequences, the significance of this cup. He hesitates because he knows that drinking this cup will mean separation from the Father, a thought that he cannot bear. For he has, for eternity past, lived with the Father in the Spirit, in intimacy, in a triunity. But because of his great love for the Father and because of his great love for us, he willingly, obediently, drank the cup of God's undiluted wrath to the very last drop as he hung on the cross as the sacrifice for your sin and mine. For you see, the cross fulfills both God's love and God's justice. And that's what makes the cross so special, isn't it? And that's what people who who try to explain away one attribute of God or the other, that's what they miss. And any time we try to do that, we cheapen the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The cross demonstrates that God is not either loving or just. He is absolutely both. And he personally paid the price. And so in light of this, the Apostle John, he writes about the state of blessedness in Revelation 14, 12. He says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. I love it. That word blessed, makarios in the Greek, it's the same word that is used in the Beatitudes by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It literally means happy. Full of joy, bliss, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Which, if you think about it, think about how it was described for those who drink the cup of God's wrath. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. The verse continues. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds Follow them. I love this image, the, uh, the idea of resting from their labors. It comes from that of world-weary sailors who have spent their lives at sea and finally have come home to port. These words of blessing are meant to be an encouragement. They're meant to encourage weary tribulation saints that their labor in the Lord is not in vain, that God will see them safely to port and every good work that they have performed during this unprecedented season of trial has been seen by God and it will be richly rewarded. And, church, those same words of encouragement, they're meant for you. Anybody weary this morning? Anybody just ready to sail into port? These words encourage us today as well. And so, this passage is a tale of three cups. The cup of idolatry in verse 9, the cup of wrath in verses 10 through 11, but then the cup of blessing in verses 12 through 13. And we circle back to that point from which of these cups you drink will ultimately tell everything about you. Either you will drink the cup of God's wrath that because of your sin you so rightly deserve, or by faith, you will appropriate the fact that Jesus drank the cup for you, enabling you forevermore to enjoy the cup of blessing. Clearly, he has taken extreme measures. He has gone the extra mile to save lost sinners. He he did it during the tribulation. If you remember, I put up the slide from time to time just to remind us that during all of this wrath that's being poured out in the book of Revelation, God is constantly at work calling people to himself. He he sent 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists, which led to a harvest of an innumerable count of Gentiles coming to know Jesus. He sent the two special messengers Moses and Elijah and now he has sent three angels to fly back and forth above the earth for all to see to proclaim the gospel to proclaim warning and then ultimately to proclaim damnation and now he is sending me to you today with this simple message Isaiah 55 verse 6 says this seek the Lord while he may be found Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that beautiful? I guess if there was ever a day for a sermon to be followed by an invitation, it would be today, right? Right? And so we're going to do that. I'm going to ask Pastor David if he would uh, go next door to the um, to the commons, and I'm going to be here at the front and just invite you during this last song if you would like to come and pray. And that could be for any number of reasons. It may be that you need to respond to this message of invitation to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because like me, you want no part. You want no part of what we have described this morning. Um, maybe you want to come and you want to pray for your three. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when I um, encouraged you to have three people that are constantly on your prayer list that you are praying for, that you can encourage one another to pray for? Maybe you want to come and pray for them so that they will have nothing to do with what we described today. Or maybe it's something else. Whatever it is, we would invite you to come and to pray. And so could we just bow our heads for a moment right now? Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that your word pulls no punches. Your word doesn't sugarcoat anything. Your word gives us the straight up truth and warning, but also provision. God, I pray that no one would leave here um, just with that sense of hopelessness, because this is not a message of hopelessness. It's the exact opposite. We have supreme hope that we will not have to experience eternal torment in a literal place of conscious hell because of Jesus, because he drank the cup of wrath in our place. And I pray that that would click with someone perhaps for the very first time today. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for someone that has yet to confess their sins and to repent of them. I pray that perhaps for someone who at some point in their past, God, um, there was some, maybe some false sense of assurance of their salvation. May they get it right today. God, I pray that no one would leave this place today without the supreme, indefinite, and clear understanding that their sins are forgiven, and that they belong to you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.